So welcome back to the online version. We still have a few people in the sanctuary this morning, which is nice to see faces. Um, We're glad that you're joining us this morning, whether you're just now eating breakfast or whatever you're doing. We're glad to have you. And our prayer this morning is that even though we have to do this again, that our hearts choose joy and we have an understanding that God is for us and not against us and that he knows what he's doing even when we have no clue. And so that's helpful for us. But why don't we just enter into a time of prayer that the Lord would just speak through this time, that our hearts would be humble and soft and ready to receive a rebuke if needed, ready to receive encouragement where necessary. Um, Yeah, God's good and faithful. He knows what he's doing. So, Father, we love you, and we take this time right now just to um, humble our hearts before you. We're about to sit under the reading and then preaching of your word, and so I want to get out of the way, and I pray that your people here would uh, surround me in prayer to uh, humble me and help me to be... um, listening to and obedient to your spirit. I pray at home as people watch that their hearts would just be enlarged to receive whatever you want to give this morning and that as we walk away, um, our hearts would be ready to accomplish this mission of making disciples together with other believers that you've given us for um, the rest of time. It's in your strong name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, we are continuing our series in the book of Esther. Um, you can turn there. We're going to be in chapters 3 and 4 today. But really what I want to do is just kind of summarize where we are at this point. Um, The king has just thrown a banquet, and um, he's gotten drunk, decided it was a good idea to uh, request the presence of his wife, the queen. She declined. After she declined, it turned into this uh, pride fest where he couldn't handle being told no. And so then he starts this nationwide or kingdom-wide beauty pageant, in a sense, the total objectification of women. It's really horrible. And Esther ends up sliding into the spot of queen by God's sovereign hand. And so at the end of chapter 2, we see that Mordecai, the cousin of Esther, her caretaker and guardian, is actually in a position of prominence, and he's waiting at the gate, and he overhears a plot to kill the king. And so he makes it known to Esther, who makes it known to the king. And then um, it's inscribed into the Chronicles of History before the king. So the king hears this. And so that's where we are at the end of chapter 2. And what you begin to see over and over and over again in the book of Esther is kind of this this, uh, tuck that away for later sort of phrase or mindset where it it comes back. It's like a cyclical piece in the story. Um, And so just tuck that away for later that uh, Haman and the plot that he had to take um, Mordecai and Esther down will be found out, but also the plot of two eunuchs who were planning to take charge of the kingdom was found out. These things will come into play later. It's pretty powerful. So be asking yourself as we start just two questions maybe. We're going, to have, we're going to have Esther 3 and 4 read for us here in a moment. But I want you to be thinking this. While you hear reading, uh, the reading of the word and while you hear this sermon preached, consider this. What would happen to me if I let pride go unchecked? If I just lived how I wanted to, if I never received rebuke, if I never humbled myself, if I never came under any level of authority, what would happen to me? And, and because... 
No one lives on an island. We all come into contact with other people. Let's also ask this question. What would happen to us as a church? What would happen to Northfield Christian Fellowship within the context of Tremont and then the larger tri-county area in the state and in the nation and eventually in the world? What would happen to us as a church if we allowed pride or judgment to go unchecked? What would happen? What, what would God do? How would things unfold? And so uh, I do want to, uh, as Caleb's going to play the, the audio here, I want you to think of this, this one thing that just really captures my heart. Um, throughout history, every year Purim, or uh, the, the Feast of um, Purim is celebrated, and it's, to, it's the irony that God uses, and we'll, and we'll talk about it in chapter 3, um, that basically chronicles what happened in the book of Esther. And they have the whole the whole account of the story of Esther read each year when they celebrate this. And when they read it, traditionally what happens in Jewish circles is they boo like crazy when Haman's name is mentioned. And they cheer when Mordecai and Esther are mentioned. It's really kind of this like loud, boisterous thing. It's not a reserved sort of thing. It's not like it's not like it's read in church, right? Where everybody sits there with their hands quietly and you're but like just so just think of that. As this is being read and you hear Haman's name, picture being in the context of, of a thousand Jews celebrating the Feast of Purim, and you're like, boo! Just going nuts when the when the antagonist is mentioned. It's it's really quite powerful. I love it. So Uh, Go ahead and have that read and be paying attention. You can follow along. We'll be in the ESV um, chapters 3 and 4. Go ahead, Caleb. After these things, King Nehashuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, and to the governors over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed with the king's signet ring. 
Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city, in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So one of the reasons that we're reading the whole text of Scripture is because it's a, this is a story. It's different than like a letter from Paul where you could just walk through and kind of pick points of application. A story is important for context. So each week you'll hear the full text read ahead of time on purpose. So Oliver Wendell Holmes, an, an author, a doctor in the 1850s, um, had a quote that just captures what we see happening in chapter 3 in particular. He said, nothing is so common as the wish to be remarkable. He just captures this idea that every human heart wants to be known, wants to be recognized, wants to be respected and regarded. And Haman is no different. You and I, we're no different. Not in that respect. And so as we walk through chapter 3 and chapter 4, I want you to be paying attention to just some large divisions. And uh, I think we can advance the slide. You can see the slide online 
Um, but we'll just break it down by the small verse chunks so that way you can follow along relatively easy. Um, and I won't have to, to go back and read the full text. But the first thing that we want to see is, is in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3. We begin to see the overarching picture here that there is insecurity and wounded pride on the part of Haman. And it leads to total self-absorption. And you're like, well, what do you mean? How is, how is pride really self-absorption? Well, just look what happens to Haman. His, his pride is injured because there's one man who won't bow. We learned at the beginning of the book of Esther that there's 127 provinces or something like that. There's a large number over a huge landmass, hundreds and thousands of people. Every one of them have to bow by edict of the king. Every one of them have to bow when Haman comes around on purpose, except for one. And so what happens is you have this guy who is so small, number one, that he's made the king give an edict that everybody has to bow when he comes. That already shows his smallness. But the second piece is that there's one person out of thousands that won't bow to him. And that's just not enough. And you start to see what happens with pride is it's total self-absorption. His pride is injured. He, he hatches a plan. And then the scope of that plan increases. Why? Because he learned something critical about Mordecai. He learned that Mordecai is of a people and an ethnicity that is not preferred. And one of his first thoughts was like, you know what? It's not good enough to take out Mordecai. I'm taking out the whole Jewish race. That's what I'm doing. And you're like, seriously? That, that, that seems a little over the top. Well, think of it this way. Proverbs 27, 20 and Ecclesiastes 1, 8 both communicate this idea that the, the eyes of man are never satisfied, nor the ears with hearing. What's he saying? In these scriptures, we see clearly what God is communicating. You will always want more. Especially when it comes to when you have wounded pride or insecurity. You will always want more. You will exact more revenge. You will be someone who wants more in personal honor than is really do your name. And you're like, no, I'm not, I'm not really like that. Let me tell you how I'm like that, and maybe this will help. When I was a youth pastor, um, it wasn't uncommon for us to have small groups in various spots in the church on a Wednesday night. And on this one particular Wednesday night, I had a small group that was meeting in my office, and I left my iPad and my phone sitting in there. Dumb idea. Totally dumb idea, especially because Caleb Immig was in that room. Now, Caleb and I talked, so I have permission to share this. But so, so Caleb knows what I don't know, because I'm you know, the dumb guy in his mid-30s, and, and, and Caleb's like a tech genius. And so he knows how, even with, a, with no password, to set alarms on my phone and on my iPad. And so he sets these phones, these alarms, to go off, like in the middle of the night, the next couple of nights. And looking back, like, it's a really great prank. It's really quite funny. Um, except it woke me and my wife up, and, and, there, and I was like, oh, man, there's no way he's getting away with that, right? And so instead of just like, hey, good prank, you know, because I didn't feel respected and honored, now this is kind of a silly example, but the reality was I went over and above. I went to the share closet, and I found an alarm clock. And I, I put that alarm clock, and I hid it behind his dresser to go off at like 2.30 in the morning. He had a cross-country meet the next morning. I did that on purpose. And then, because Caleb really loved his iPod and loved to like play games, I got into his house, and I got his iPod, and I erased it. Okay? It's really awesome. <laughs> and, but the problem was, 
you know, Caleb's Caleb, so he keeps a backup and it really didn't matter that much. But here's the deal. Did I go over and above what Caleb did to me? Absolutely. And that's what happens when you are insecure and you have wounded pride and someone steps on your pride. The first thing you do is like, I'm going to get more. I'm going after the, the, the jugular. You're not going to get away with that. And we see that happening. Pride, after all, is self-absorption. It's a constant valuation, not evaluation. It's a constant valuation of self. It's, it's this, do I measure up? And, well, yes, un, un, until I don't. So if pride is self-absorption, then there's really two forms. And so I want, um, I, I'm going to give you actually a few seconds here at home uh, for parents to explain this. Because we typically think of pride, and we think of the professional athlete who can't top, stop talking about himself and how great he is. We think of the individual who, who, who feels the need to mention all the time their accomplishments and how wonderful they are. But pride actually has two forms. If we're talking about self-absorption, we're thinking you can be self-absorbed to the point that you think you're the greatest, but you could also be self-absorbed to the point that you think you're the least. And so you're always talking about it. You're always like, oh man, I stink. I'm like the worst at this. I'm never going to do good at this. I'm going to be failing at this. I'm not going to do this. And, and all the while, you're doing what? You're actually saying, God, the grace that you have for me somehow isn't enough. So I need to make sure that other people pile it on. It's called fishing for compliments or whatever you want to call it. Pride has two forms. You can exalt yourself or you can degrade yourself. In both cases, who's the focus? This guy. All the time. So parents, I'm going to give you guys about 30 seconds here at home, maybe a minute, to totally unpack that huge truth because I know you're really capable. Go ahead and take just a few moments and see if you can help explain that to your children. Problem solved, and parents, I'm sure, have explained everything. Um, I really do believe that parents, the, uh, the goal of leading and guiding your children is not my job as a minister, and it's not the elder's job. It's your job, and God's equipped you for it with his spirit. So be prepared. There's more coming. So the verse, six verses look at pride as self-absorption. The second number of verses, verses 7 through 11, look at this idea of, of irony or sovereignty. And quite honestly, um, they are rolling dice. That's what's happening. It says they're casting pure or pur. And uh, the closest equivalent for us is like a, a box of dice or a, a set of dice that you're rolling for a game. If you've played Yahtzee or there's this cool new game that our family loves playing called Tenzies, where you have uh, all these die and you just roll them and hopefully you get the same number. Totally to chance, right? Wrong. Proverbs 16 actually talks about this idea that you can roll dice or cast prayer into your lap and that the Lord is actually the one who controls the outcome. And you're like, well, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because they're rolling die to determine when they're going to have an ethnic cleansing. Think of the, the, the sordid and twisted and despicable nature of that. They're actually rolling dice to determine the fate of an entire ethnicity. That's horrible. Our, our world is in a very similar state right now. There's, there's lots of tension that surrounds ethnic problems. And it's, it's really clear when you start to read something like this, that God is sovereign. 
Why? Because he actually had the lots or the pur fall on a celebration of a day that's really interesting in the Jewish calendar. The 13th of Adar, I think is what it says, is, is, is it's looking at this idea of being celebrated right before Passover. And you're like, well, why does that matter? Well, when was the last time the nation of Israel or the Jews were being threatened to be completely annihilated and wiped out? Would it not be when they were up against water in front where they couldn't cross and a whole army bearing down behind them and a king who had such um, unbelievable pride that he would exterminate an entire number of Jews just because? And so they celebrate as, as a people, they celebrated Passover, this idea of deliverance from oppression and slavery. And here... God causes the, the Purim, the dice, to roll and land on a day that their extermination would be right before his great deliverance. I'm sure the, the, the person, the, the individual, the Jew who's, who's reading this story or who's living it is saying, oh my goodness, our extermination is commanded the day before we celebrate our greatest deliverance as a people. Huh. What could God be up to? What could God be up to in that? So he never loses a detail. In fact, Haman is so uh, powerfully persistent in his ways that he promises King Ahasuerus, he promises him um, 10 talents of silver, right? You're like, okay, well, or 10,000 talents, sorry. You're like, okay, well, 10,000 talents. We read that and flow past it. Do you, do you know that that's the equivalent? Two things that'll be helpful. Um, Back then, it would have been the equivalent of roughly a year's worth of income of the entire Persian Empire. Now, I don't know uh, GDP and, and how our country works or how much money we bring in versus how much money goes out. Um, there are much more brilliant minds than mine on that. But just consider for a minute that essentially what Haman is doing is he's promising in today's dollars roughly $120 million to, to the king. He's saying, hey, if you let me exterminate these people, I'll make sure that we take $120 million and put it into your treasuries. So if I'm the king, and if I'm vain, which the king has already proven to be, he's saying, bring it on. <laughs> like, you're going to fill my coffers with some cash? I'll take it. And who wouldn't? Irony or sovereignty? They're talking $120 million, the whole... Uh, Income for an entire empire for a year. And let me just say this. Pride sees others as a means to the end of their own desires. I want something. You're in my way. I'm going to get it. I don't care if I have to pay. Pride sees humans as a means to their own desires. Then verses 12 through 15, if you read them carefully, and I'm not going to read them all, but about seven different times, you'll see the word all and every used. And this communicates really the scope of Haman's pride. It's this idea that pride is, is not partially devastating. It's not mostly devastating. Pride is totally devastating. In every context, there's no room for pride in the life of the believer in Jesus Christ. And we see that over and over and over again all that Haman commanded, all the provinces, all the peoples, every province, every people in its own language, all the king's provinces, all the Jews. You're like, oh my goodness, this guy is like fixated. Yes, he is. 
And you may be thinking, that's so ugly. That pride is so ugly. I don't know that I could ever act like Haman. Yes, you can. So can I. And you're like, well, how? Just consider different ways that you can circle a conversation back toward your accomplishments. Consider certain ways that you may provide an evaluation of someone else's performance or character. Just as part of the conversation. And you're like, man, I, I didn't quite realize that, that pride is self-absorption. That when I'm talking a lot about myself or when I'm talking low of myself, it's the same thing. It's me that I want to put on the throne. So maybe this is helpful. From a truth to life, I want you to consider this. How do you respond when God wounds your pride? And you're like, what do you mean God wounding my pride? Well, first thing that typically happens is my hope and my prayer, my earnest plea is that as believers in Jesus Christ, we say, you know what? Being in the word matters, right? There is an idea that my experience is here and the truth of God's word is my filter. And that actually gives me what I need to accomplish everything that he's asking. And so when I read God's word and my life is not actually lined up with it, you see, Peter and Paul had this exchange in the Gospels, where, or in the book of Acts, where uh, Peter is acting in a way, it says, that is not in step with the Gospel, and says that Paul rebukes him. So through Paul, God wounds Peter's pride, and it leads to the salvation of many as the Gospel goes out to the Gentiles in the book of Acts. So the question then is, well, how does that happen? Because if I'm on an island, if I am not in community and I'm just by myself and all I'm doing is reading God's word and praying, guess what? God will wound my pride. You can't actually read the word of God and find that your life is totally in line with it. God will wound your pride in that small context of just you and him. But guess what? The idea of lasting change, the idea of effectual change that actually goes to the heart level won't happen when it's just you, God, and your Bible. It just doesn't. Because God didn't design us that way. He designed us to be in community. Look at Haman and how he was surrounded by only people who would bow or get out of the way. And, and he didn't listen. There's no lasting change there. And so my question is, what do you do when God wounds your pride? You have a better chance of lasting change to occur when you do this with other people, when you are in community like a 242 group and someone wounds your pride, someone's like, yeah, I don't know that that was the nicest thing to say out loud. And you're like, uh, well. And you can respond small like Haman or you can respond with the humility that the Holy Spirit brings in repentance and you can be deeply sad over how you wounded somebody else. So your wounded pride and your insecurity will reveal the big idea for today that we want to walk away with. When your identity is threatened, your true character is going to be revealed. So let's move to chapter 4. In chapter 4, we see kind of the total flip of this. We see this idea that lament and prayerfulness lead to a humble boldness. You see, think of just the example that we see in the first three verses of chapter four. In the first three verses, we have this idea that Mordecai learns of the threat that's coming against the Jews. He learns, oh my goodness, we're going to be exterminated. Now think about that. Think, 
It's not just you're going to be exterminated tomorrow and you've got to sleep on it. Because the, the, the purr or the dice were cast and, and they landed on the, in Adar, that would have been literally 11 months you have to think through, oh my goodness, we're dead. 11 months of, oh my goodness, we're dead. 11 months of it's coming. Think about that. 11 months. Now, what did Mordecai do? Mordecai tears off his clothes, puts on sackcloth and ashes, which is a sign of mourning and lamentation and repentance. And he goes and cries with a loud and bitter cry in the city square. Why? Because he knows when sin is present, there ought to be sadness and lament over it. And you're like, well, why does that matter? What's the point? Look at what the nation does in following him. You see it, what says, he went up to the king's gate, clothed in sackcloth. And then in verse 3, in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. You're like, whoa. So Haman set an example and an entire nation of people follows after him. Holy cow. That's crazy. So from a truth to life perspective, maybe this is a good question. If I knew someone was going to perpetrate sin against me, even great and vile wickedness, what's my response? Do I post it on social media? Do I get revenge? Do I get angry? Do I get indifferent? What do I do? Look at what Mordecai does. And maybe ask yourself this question. What is my first response when someone sins against me? Rant, gossip, revenge, post, anger, indifference. What's my response? Do I genuinely lament over sin? Do I? Even sin that's going to be committed against me, not just the sin that I commit. It's easy to be sad when I'm caught doing what I know is wrong. But consider when someone sins against you. Do you allow for that to be something that's saddening? In verses 4 through 11 of chapter 4, we start to see humility's cost. See, in verses 1 through 3, we saw humility's sadness, which is a lament over sin. And now we're picking up on humility's cost. See, Esther learns of the exact details from Mordecai. And this isn't some sob story where Mordecai is some wuss who's complaining. Oh, my life is so hard. And he's trying to exact some blessing or benefit from his, his cousin, who's his queen. No, he's not doing that. He accurately and painstakingly delivers the facts to Esther, who's insulated in the palace. He says, this is what's going to happen. It says he even told her the exact details, the exact sum of money. And what does she do? She is deeply distressed. Deeply distressed. You see, true lament over sin is accurate, but it's emboldening. I mean, consider just this past Wednesday, we had an awesome time out at Bill and Debbie Teeters where testimonies were shared. And we had a number of people get up and publicly proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and deliverer over their circumstances. Like boldness of being known, exposing past, and saying, Jesus, I'm all yours. I don't care who knows. I am so humbled by your saving of me. I'll do whatever you want. 
and there was boldness, but it was humble. There wasn't a tinge of like, oh, look at me, look at my past, look what God's done. No, it's more, look at what God has done, I'm so grateful. And maybe this is a good thing for us to consider, that the true cost of humility for you and for me, it might be your status. It might be your wealth. It may even be your life. Have you thought about it like that? This is the stuff that Esther is thinking through. And she's like, well, wait a minute. Uh, There's only one command. The cost of being humble is going to require that I walk into the presence of the king. And no one comes into the presence of king unless he's summoned. And if he's summoned, he still has to have the golden scepter hung out. Because if the golden scepter's not hung out, guess what the command is? It's death. So I'm going to look. I'm going to look humility straight in the eye. And I'm going to look at it and I'm going to say, I guess if I die, I die. I'm bold. Are you that bold? Is that something that you're willing to do? Are you willing to step back into the place of difficulty if needed? There's only one way that you get there, and that's in verses 12 through 15. You really, you really begin to trust, humility trusts God's sovereignty. You know, in Hebrews 12, there's this, uh, one of my favorite chunks in Hebrews 12 that just really, I don't know, just it moves me. Think of this. In verse 26, it says, At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So I just want to ask you, what is it about an unshakable kingdom that is so powerfully inviting right now in the day and age in which we live? What is it? Is it the fact that there's a security here? And you're like, well, why does this matter? What, what about an unshakable kingdom? Well, think of Mordecai. Mordecai essentially tells Esther, hey, look, if you don't do what I'm very certain God has placed you here to do, God's going to take care of us. Deliverance will rise from the Jew, for the Jews from another place. It's a picture of the gospel. He's saying, no, God's going to do what he's going to do. He will. Guess what? He doesn't need you. And so that's why I would say, I would encourage you, if you're like, oh man, if I don't do this or if I fail, guess what? I screwed up God's plan. I'm sorry, you're not that powerful. God, God like has it all under control and he's not worried that somehow your slip up of lack of obedience or your falling into sin is gonna somehow throw his whole plan off. God is far more powerful than that. That ought to be extremely encouraging because then you can walk in obedience and failure and find purpose in him and his redemption. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to nail it. You can swing the hammer and hit your thumb a time or two. It's okay. It also helps me to know that God has promised this. He's promised to deliver us an unshakable kingdom, which means he can never be thwarted. 
And this is one of the greatest lessons that Job learns, and you can read about it in Job 42. After Job finally complains to God, one of my favorite lines in Scripture is, is God says to Job, now Job, I want you to sit down, and I'm going to question you like a man. And you're like, whoa. <laughs> if God says, I'm going to question you like a man, sit down. It's time to listen. And he says essentially this, no plan of mine's ever going to be thwarted. I'm on my throne, you can't dethrone me. That's, that's comforting. It means, and I want you to hear this with as much power and passion and accuracy according to scripture that I can say, there is never a valid reason to surrender your hope. There's never a valid reason to surrender your hope. Are you in that marriage that it's like, this stinks. There's never a valid reason to surrender your hope. Do you have a hard child who won't listen? Never a valid reason to surrender your hope. Are you looking at the news and the media currently? Never a valid reason to surrender your hope. Are you at a place in life where you are overcome and ravaged by a particular sin that you just wish would go away? Never a valid reason to surrender your hope. You see, upon learning the threat of peril and death that faced her, what did Esther do? She called for a fast. It's interesting, isn't it? He said, the headlines point to solutions, political reform, blame the government, wait till November, shelter in place, find new ways of doing church, choose joy. Tons of different potential solutions. How many Christians do you see lamenting, calling for a fast, and then engaging in some sort of God-directed action? And just consider that. Parents, you can model this for your kids at home. Instead of reading headlines and lamenting over a political leader's choice or how they're carrying out the very difficult tasks that they have, you can call for a fast within your family. I'm like, uh, have you ever seen my five-year-old? Like, if he doesn't eat, it's not going to be pretty. It doesn't have to be that. Brady talked about it last week, this idea of choosing a Sabbath. Sabbath is a way of resistance. It's a quiet protest of this world and the shakable things in it don't run me. They don't own me. So in that light, take a fast, shut off the screens. Take a fast, isolate yourselves as a family and learn to lean into the Lord and pray. You see, Esther was so bold that she actually called her young women who were attending to her to fast with her. You're like, well, why is that a big deal? Because they weren't Jews. They didn't have a God to really pray to. And so the obvious implication here is she's saying, would you fast and pray with me? The only way they would even know what she was talking about is if she was actively engaged in living that sort of lifestyle, even while in the kingdom. And so she's calling them, and then she's saying, Mordecai, I want you to fast for me too. I want you to gather all the Jews, and I want you to fast because I can't do this. And we're going to see this unfold in the coming weeks, that out of lament and out of fasting comes bold action. That's awesome. That is awesome. And actually, as I was thinking of this this week and praying through this message, one of the things that just really came to mind was Luke chapter 19 through 24. You see, in Luke chapter 19, in verses 41 through 44, 
What does Jesus do? I want you to watch how this mirrors chapter 4 of Esther. In Esther, you see Mordecai is like, oh, he recognizes sin that's going to be against him and he laments. Jesus, in Luke chapter 19, is riding into town on a donkey. Everybody's throwing things down. Like, he's the king. He's awesome. And what is Jesus doing? He's weeping. He's lamenting over Jerusalem. He's like, these people, they've killed the prophets. These people didn't pay attention to warnings that were coming for them. These people. And he laments over sin. And then in Luke 22, he's in the garden. And he's praying. And he's counting the cost of his obedience. And he says, Father, if there's another way, would you give it to me? But I want to do what you will. It mirrors Esther's words of, if I perish, I perish. So be it. And here's Jesus, I will perish, I will perish, so be it. Oh, man. And then what does Jesus do? In in Luke chapter 23 and 24, he boldly accomplishes our redemption. He laments over sin, and he counts the cost of his obedience, and then he walks into it with humble boldness. You see, rising from lament was an action in the face of peril. That's awesome stuff. That's our God. That is in line with what our big idea is, this idea that when identity is threatened, true character is revealed. You see, Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, his identity is threatened. People are like, he's really the son of God. No, he's not. Think of Jesus in the temptation in Luke 4 and Matthew 4 if you are the son of God. What rises out of this idea, the idea that his identity is challenged? The whole concept that rises out of that is him just saying, you know what? I'm going to lament over sin. I'm going to count the cost of the obedience and then I'm going to step into it because I know God has me. And so as the worship team comes back up uh, to sing one last song, let's return to that question at the very beginning. What would happen to me, what would happen to us if I let my pride and my judgment go unchecked?
present help I'd be lost all by myself He resurrects, he sanctifies Takes his power and makes it mine Jesus, he took my place in divine exchange Hallelujah, grace is mine Now I will live by faith For the one who saves He gave all to give me life I lay down all lesser things For greater gain He is alive inside of me alive inside of me I lay down all lesser things for greater gain He is alive inside of me I lay down all lesser things for greater gain He is alive inside of me I lay down all lesser things for greater gain, He is alive inside of me. I lay down all lesser things. For greater gain, He is alive. Oh, Jesus, He took my place in divine exchange. Hallelujah, grace is mine. He took my place in divine exchange. Hallelujah, grace is mine. Now I will live by faith for the one who saves. He gave all to give me life. I lay down all lesser things for greater gain. He is alive inside of me. I lay down all lesser things for greater gain. He is alive. Hey, Father, there was a divine exchange with your son. Not only did he consider and lament the sin that was going to be done against him. But as I even think about this, it's my sin that's against him that he lamented. And he still receives me through a divine exchange only made possible on the cross. Humble us this week, Lord. Help us to go out in your boldness. Amen. Have a blessed week and lean into the strength and power that only Jesus provides.